So, Christina, this is so awesome. Thank you very much for joining me this morning, my time, this noon, your time, I think. It is noon, my time here on the East Coast in the land of Styron and barbecue. So, and thanks for having me on the show, March. Absolutely. I have been looking forward to this ever since I stumbled across your book and was so pleased to receive, well, it felt like an advanced reader copy, but Finlandia has actually already come out, correct? Yes, it has. It launched in the United States uh, this past Tuesday, the 19th of October, and it will be coming out in the UK uh, through HQ Stories on the 28th of October, I believe. All right. All right. Awesome. Very cool. Uh, Would you take a few minutes to let all of our listeners know a little bit about who you are and what you do? Sure. Uh, So I am Christina Dalcher. I am a theoretical linguist turned novelist. I sort of made a career switch rather late in life. And that was, that was a happy accident. I never anticipated being a writer, at least not writing creatively. I've certainly done enough technical writing uh, in my, during my academic career. And what happened was that my husband and I had been abroad working for about seven years or so um, in the UK, in the United Arab Emirates, and then we finished up in Sri Lanka. And when we came back to the States, I found that I was so behind on research in my field and so behind on publishing and what was coming out in the world of acoustic phonetics and phonology. I sort of threw my hands up in my late 40s and said, what am I going to do now? And I toyed with the idea of going back to school. <laughs> I didn't really want to do that all over again. I, you know, I figured getting a PhD was enough. Right. So I started writing and I thought that, well, I'll just start writing a novel. But then I fell into this wonderful crowd of people uh, who I met mostly on the internet who wrote this stuff called flash fiction. Mm. really short condensed stories almost always under a thousand words very often under 500 words or under 300 words and I found that there was it was so much fun experimenting with this it kind of satisfied me in a way that uh that a lot of other things didn't because you could write something so quickly and then you could move on to some to a completely different project you could use a different voice a different character right. a different uh sort of format and i i just became mad about about flash fiction but of course flash fiction doesn't really pay the bills <laughs> uh, yeah <laughs> you know yeah. a dollar a story uh isn't quite the same thing as, as selling a novel that's <laughs> what i do uh, my first novel vox was published in 2018. My second novel, Masterclass, came out in April of 2020. And then my third novel, Femlandia, was just published this past week. Right, right. Okay. Oh my goodness. That is that is really actually quite timely. Uh, I knew you and I were very similar in age. Um, but yeah, there's that, I mean, how many of us men and women alike find ourselves in our late 40s, close to 50, and we're just trying to decide, do we want to continue doing what we have done or is there going to be a shift? And how do you shift at this age? 
because we all have a sense of how to shift in your 20s. But how do you right. shift at this age, you know, especially, I think, trying to go into a new arena. Um, and especially sometimes as a woman, I think that um, women can, if they're shifting from having done primary childcare and house handling and that side of life, shifting into a career is a unique trajectory. So yeah, you seem to have handled that transition with amazing grace and success. Well, thank you. I, I like to think so. And I also think that it's, I think it's healthy. I think uh, re, I, even my, even my doctoral studies came along later in life. So I spent my twenties actually working more in finance and budget, uh, believe it or not. And I found that every 10 years I sort of needed to do a new thing. Mm. But I think this reinventing oneself is a very healthy thing because I, the more women I know who are, you know, in their fifties, in their early sixties, even approaching retirement, the more I hear about this fear of what, what am I going to be after I stop working? Mm. What, what's my identity going to be like? So I think that if you've led a life and you've done a number of very different things in those working years of 20s, 30s, 40s, and, and, and early 50s, it becomes much easier to remain flexible and not get in a rut. And that's, that's, what, that's what we don't want to do as human beings. We want to stay flexible. We want to stay open to the world and to new ideas. Mm-hmm. So, so it's, it's, uh, you know, it's a blessing and a curse because on the one hand, if you don't stick with the same career, you're never going to be like at the top of that chosen profession. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, it does afford you um, some, some real flexibility in, and, and it makes you very adaptable because who knows what's going to happen. I mean, look at what happened in 2020. We got the plague, right? Yeah, we all had right. to function in this very different kind of a world. And I think that the more flexible we are and the more adaptable we are, then then the easier time we probably have when life throws us uh, an unexpected curveball. Sure, definitely. I mean, well, and the interesting thing that just came to mind, though, is something I did learn about when I, my early college career uh, was focused on history and then sociology and psychology. And there is this term that's used for human beings, which is called super adaptability, which mm-hmm. is actually sort of a negative because that's where a person can get used to living in a really polluted city environment, or you can get used to living in an abusive environment. And so one of the interesting things is that Yes, we want to be adaptable, but we need to also make decisions about what we're willing to adapt to, or we can end up, you know, it's like those things. I always think of the fish and and the oceans and rivers and how, you know, 200 years ago, whoever lived around a beautiful ocean area and let's take Japan, they went out in their boats and they would come back very easily after a half day of fishing with, you know, um, tuna and then bluefin tuna in particular. And a hundred years ago, that was starting to shift already. And now you can go out with a fleet around Japan and come back with hardly no bluefin at all. And they're almost gone out of the Mediterranean and so on and so forth. So the question is, do the children who grow up in this new world adapt to it so readily that they get used to something that we wouldn't actually want to choose to accept? Does that make sense? 
That makes perfect sense. And yes, I think we have to balance adaptability to the external world with a sense of uh, personal integrity and uh, you know a willingness to continue being who we are. And, and sometimes that means putting a hand up and saying, no, uh, I'm not going to adapt to that. <laughs> I'm not, right. I'm, I'm, I need to, I need to think about, you know, where I've been, who I am, and you want to remain personally stable. So, so yes, there's a very delicate balance. And, and I think this probably applies to the writing world as well. We, mm. we need to, on the one hand, adapt to the world. And of course the world is changing, um, I think partly due to social media, uh, we've got, we're seeing a lot of, of activist movements. We're seeing a lot of new uh, sort of rules and conventions, you know, what mm. we can say, what we can't say. Uh, and we need to pay attention to that, but we also need, as writers, but we also need to stick to our guns and say, well, I want to write what I want to write. Yeah. And, and not necessarily deny our our own sort of selves uh, just because let's say the publishing industry is trending a certain way or the right. world is trending a certain way or readers are trending a certain way. But it's very difficult because if you stick to your guns too, if you adapt too much, then you lose yourself. Right. And if you stick to your guns too much, you can end up with no career. Right, right. right. Well, and social movements are so fascinating in that, you know, it's almost like the swaying of the opinion of society. And so, yes, it's like um, one decade an idea sounds great. And then a decade later, there's like pushback against it because there's, you know, this ongoing I refer, I always say the civil rights movement wasn't some flash in the pan thing that happened back in the 60s. It's an ongoing event that just has highs and lows of awareness, you know, or, right. or moments that get really bright and hot like we saw in 2020. Um, and we saw with the Me Too movement and we've seen with own voices and we see and we see and we see over and over again. Sometimes I wonder, is life really changing faster now, or is that just our sort of self-centered myopic view that we always assume that the life today is different than the past, but maybe in the 1700s, life was actually taking much longer to change. I don't know. I just sort of feel like maybe humans have just been endlessly pushing the envelope one direction or the other. It just seems to be sure. human nature. I think so. And we, we were just talking before the show, March, about older generations. I mean, my grandmother actually lived to 95, I oh. believe. And when you look at these people, uh, you and I, I knew her very well because I'm the oldest grandchild. So when you look at that older generation, you think, wow, what was the world like for them? Did how, how quick? And I think we tend to believe that everything is changing very rapidly for us but we for, and we forget that for people who were born in in the 19 teens yeah wow there was a lot of stuff going on too in in their lives i mean mm -hmm. they saw you know the automobile industry kind of explode they saw later in life they saw technology they saw us put a man on the moon so i do wonder if we tend to think myopically, as you said, that, mm -hmm. oh, everything I'm experiencing has only happened to me. <laughs> and we forget that it also happened to the generations beforehand. 
but I certainly <laughs> believe that the internet has, and social media in, in specifically, has probably aided and abetted uh, a more, oh, kind of volatile fluctuation. Oh, the volatility piece, that's for darn trends. sure. Right. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. The internet of, of what do you say? A mixed blessing. It is that. I do have uh I do have these dark fantasies about what hap- what would happen if the internet broke. <gasps> right. Uh, and, <laughs> and you know, there, part of me goes, Ooh, I'm rubbing my hands together. Wouldn't that be interesting I to know, see? I know. Uh, of course, of course, we're so dependent on it you know, economically that I think but we would we would have it would be the effects would be devastating. Oh, I mean, yes, it's not necessarily an eagerness, but from a storyteller's perspective, we definitely could go lots of places with that. It's interesting because I actually, you've mentioned flash fiction and I discovered flash fiction about seven years ago and actually have this side project that I have worked on bits and pieces over the years, but it's um, based, I live on an island that literally only has ferries. We have no bridges. We have no land Ah. uh, bridge either. So we're a truly waterbound island. And I have this whole three-year story arc that I will at some point tell all in flash fiction pieces, which is based upon this moment in time where the island becomes completely cut off from the rest of the world. And like, when you look up at the sky, you don't see satellites at night. You don't see airplanes flying over. And um, no one on the island knows why or how. And it was started as a homeschooling project for kids to help them have a, a storyline, like sort of when you played um, Dungeons and & Dragons, and it's one of those role-playing games where you're walking yourself through a story. So it would be yes. really appealing to kids. And then each week, it'd be like, okay, well, what would happen at first? And it was about discovering the resources of the island. You know, would the local radio stations still run or do they ping off an antenna off island? You know, would the elect- where does our electricity come from? Blah, blah, blah. And so I was like, this could be a really fascinating way over a year for the kids to explore all their island resources through story. But, um, but once again, flash fiction, it's like, I love, as you said, the ability to come in and you can nail a character in this situation with a certain tone, ambiance, everything. And then the next one is a completely different character perspective, still part of the whole right. story, but it, they could all have different feelings and shapes to them and sizes. And so, right. Yeah. Right. And you can experiment with different, with different formats and different structures. Mm-hmm. So you don't necessarily have to stick to a prose narrative. You can, you can, you can switch things around. You could write a story that is like a list, like a a list. You could write a story based uh, on um, rules for a board game. Oh, I like your idea. You could really fun. I mean, experimental flash fiction is amazing. I mean, I've done things with their stories just with dictionary entries. Oh Um, my gosh. We'll have to connect a little bit more. If you don't mind, I'm going to chase you down on this topic a bit more later because I I was like, oh, she's into flash fiction like I am. And not a lot of people usually will bring that up. And oh my goodness gracious, I love your ideas already. It's brilliant. And and just to to round round this out a little bit, what you're doing with these, the series of linked stories Mm -hmm. is actually sounds uh, like a very perfect novella in flash 
Mm. Which I don't know whether you've heard about it, but this is a format where you end up with a novella of, let's say, 20,000 words, maybe mm-hmm. 30,000 words. And every segment of it is a standalone piece of flash fiction. Right. But the way that they're arranged have there there's a there's a you know there will be they'll self-contained in each piece there will be some character arc some story arc but then when you put them together right over the course of this novella you also have a story arc and a yeah. character arc. I've always thought like when when people who are building towards a writing career think about platform you know sometimes there's you want to have something maybe you've already published yourself and you know mm-hmm. and I've always thought that this would be like my foot in the door project but um I at this point I'm just focused on my novel but I love it oh my gosh so yeah, yeah thank it's good you. it's really good and and I think it's one of the best ways to teach yourself how to write really yeah. because it doesn't require this 80,000 word 300 some odd page investment over yeah. months and months and months you can do a piece of flash in a day or less just and and if you don't like it who cares it's you know 500 words you throw it away you start over again you're exactly right which hey. is why i'm looking forward to having so little on my plate for the next 5 months so it will be fascinating to see what I'm able to create while I'm down in the desert again this winter. I think it will be, and I'm going to look forward to seeing it. Yeah. All right. Okay. Yes. And I will definitely stay in touch. Let's see here though. So for everyone who's listening, um, can you go ahead and give them like a brief summary of Vox and Masterclass and Finlandia? Absolutely. So the first book, Vox, Wow, that was interesting. Uh, (laughs) It was interesting to write and it was interesting to uh, see what happened. Right. What's happening in in Vox is that I imagined the United States in the very near future where a fundamental, I would say, very right-wing religious movement has effectively bought the presidency. And... um, And their goal is to make, kind of reintroduce family values, reintroduce a Victorian era culture of domesticity. Mm -hmm. And for those people who don't know, the culture of domesticity was, which we also saw a resurgence of in like the 1950s, when the war was over, women who were working in factories, you know, came back home, we had Leave it to Beaver and Father Knows Best and all those wonderful sitcoms where right. uh, June Cleaver would be in her apron in the house taking With care the pearls of kids on. and the dinner. And exactly. And, and dad would go out to work. So, so, so when you think of culture of domesticity, think of women in the private sphere, that's the home, mm-hmm. men in the public sphere. And I imagine that there are a whole bunch of people, women included, who think that that would be a great idea. So what happens in Vox is they do think it's a great idea. And in order to kind of keep women in their place, all women and even little girls wear these wristbands that count their words all the way up to 100 per day. And after 100 words, those wristbands emit a little electric shock. It's a way to control people through limiting their speech. Mm-hmm. And there are, it's really a thriller. 
it's commercial fiction. I love it. There's some, there's some romance in it. There's some tension. There's, uh, you know, somebody probably dies because I think, you know, you can't have a thriller where somebody doesn't die, <laughs> but, <laughs> and it's written from, and it's written from the perspective of the main character, Jean, who is a neuro linguist who's working on a cure for a certain type of aphasia uh, of, that, that affects language. And the irony is that she's been so busy working on this for all of her life. Her career was so important to her that she was just living in this complete bubble and didn't pay any attention to what was going on in the world. She didn't vote. She didn't do this. She didn't use her voice. And right. of course, Vox is Latin for voice. So there, it's, got a, it's got some different layers to it. And, uh, and, and that's Vox. Masterclass, which I originally titled Q. And uh, in fact, in the UK, the title is Q. Yeah, I so, noticed that. I was a little confused, but okay, now it makes sense. Yeah, and and Q, I liked Q. I love these sort of mysterious one syllable or one letter titles. I think it's. I think they can be really fun because they they. It's like putting a big question mark on the cover of a book. But Q stands for quotient, and in masterclass. Everybody is measured from even before they're born. They've got this series of numbers that kind of add up to some quotient, not an intelligence quotient necessarily. It could be tied to uh, health, for instance, uh, based on, let's say, the mother's age when she you know, becomes pregnant or something. You know, you, mm. you get docked a few points on your cue uh, prenatally if uh, if there were some for that there were some assumed risks. So, so the book is really about a resurgence of the American eugenics movement, right. which was a an early twentieth century movement to create better babies, fitter families. There were actually contests, better baby contests, fitter family contests. There was a lot of IQ testing. There were kids who were deemed feeble-minded, who were placed into federal institutions, which they called state schools, but really they were institutions. And I found that the history of this movement so fascinating and also so little known by Americans. I've never heard about this in any history course that I'd ever taken. Really? Uh, oh. you know, we're all about, all, about, all about Hitler's final solution, but we never actually heard about the Rockefellers who were supporting this idea of, um, of eugenics, of, create, of, of, of kind of filtering uh, humans through this lens of, of perfection. So mm -hmm. that's, uh, that's the that's masterclass. It's also a thriller. Mm -hmm. uh, it's also very much about a mother and her children trying to navigate this near future dystopian society. And, um, and I think it's, it's, uh, it's interesting. I also hope that it, my biggest hope for that book is that when people read it, they go, oh my goodness, I had no idea this happened. And they actually go and look up this slice of history that I think most people in the United States really prefer to ignore and, and, and not admit happened. Mm, well, and you know, it's interesting. It's very interesting that, that that wasn't something that you had necessarily heard about before, because I always find it 
fascinating that so many of us have heard about things that for us, because we hear about them and then we check in on them and we talk to other people about them, we start to get a sense that it's like um, a generally overall understood piece of information. And then you'll meet people who haven't heard about it at all. And for me, I'm totally at the point where that doesn't surprise me and it seems normal. Whereas sometimes people will go into a place of judgment and be sort of like, well, how can you not know that? And I'm like, well, trust me, that person knows a bunch of stuff that you don't know, you know? So um, it's interesting when we start to do research as writers, especially, and we stumble across things and we're like, wow, how is it that that was never mentioned? Well, maybe we know why it wasn't mentioned in government schools, but how is it that in general we don't hear about this? And then you have this beautiful opportunity as a writer to decide if you want to actually sort of uh, trigger people's awareness. Um, so I think that that's one of the one of the unique, fascinating, exciting parts of writing in this world and being able to highlight things. I happen to know a lot about the eugenics movement in California. Um, yes. I know about all about Jane Stanford's um, experiences with the first president of Stanford University, who happened to be one of the primary movers and shakers and proponents of the eugenics movement. And a lot of that has to do with my novel and having done research um, into that. But you're right. A lot of people would have no clue. So, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, with, you know, I, and I'm in Virginia, so Virginia was also a pretty, you know, kind of a hot seat for, oh, for, the, for the eugenics movement. And we've got you know, the Supreme Court case, of course, in 1927, it'll carry Buck v. Bell, mm -hmm. um, which is, uh, which is kind of interesting. And in fact, I dedicated, I dedicated Q slash masterclass to the memory of, of Carrie Buck, oh. who was a woman who, was uh, fooled around with probably by, by one of the young men in a house where she was living and and she was deemed feeble-minded so they wanted to sterilize her mm -hmm. and that was the Supreme Court case where Oliver Wendell Holmes said, Junior, said, yep, okay, we, you can do that. Uh, three generations of imbeciles are enough. Mm. And it's... Uh, what it's year was that? In, that was 1927, Buckley yeah. Bell. Yeah. And and so so I, I even though Masterclass is it's not a textbook, there are, there's a there's a lot there are a lot of little historical snippets in there. It doesn't get really lecture. -y. No, no, it definitely sounds like a wonderful story. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. And yeah. on to Femlandia. Well yes. uh, <laughs> so let's imagine Well actually, hold on a second. Yeah. Before I just have you summarize Femlandia, huh. let's let's I'm thinking maybe we first sort of start off a little bit with this, uh, exploring a little bit of the experience of what you had when Finlandia came out and how people have responded to it. Maybe come at it from that angle. When they um, wrote up about Vox, they talked about it being uncomfortably plausible, having frightening links to current world realities. And, um, and then Finlandia came out, and my impression from what I've read about Finlandia, because I've only gotten two chapters into it, and I'm looking forward to going further because I'm loving your voice. Um, but is it Finlandia actually sort of said, well, things can go the other direction as well? You want to come at it from that perspective? Sure, sure. Yeah. So let's let's start by kind of abstracting away from me and from and from Vox. Yeah. And Thinking 
for a minute about as you know, put, let's put ourselves in the position of readers. And so for everybody who's listening, if you know, if you're a reader, you can kind of do this thought experiment too. When you read a book, any book, and I'm talking about fiction, uh, what assumptions do we make about the author? Mm -hmm. And do we read a book and say, wow, this book is about this. And it, it seems to be making a, a, a certain, going, uh, making a certain type of comment about society or politics or religion or women's issues or anything like that, any issue. Right. And therefore, do we automatically assume that th that is what the author is? That's what the author thinks or that's who the author is. I think this is really fascinating outlook that says, well, the author is dead, right? So we'll just take the book and, oh, and right. see what I mean? Yes. Um, and what's in the book is what is. And we can talk about the author based on what's in the book, not based on what we know about the author. So I wonder how often we as readers do this when, when, we, uh, when we pick up a piece of, of fiction. Mm -hmm. And I think this happened, I think this might have happened with Vox. So here's something interesting. Vox was sold, my agent sold Vox to, uh, to Penguin Random House two weeks after the Me Too movement hit Twitter. Mm -hmm. I wrote the book before the Me Too movement. Right. Necessarily, but it was sold then and it came out the following year. Uh, the so it was also called the me too book of the year oh, right? right and and i think that because of that it's possible that there were assumptions that were made just like with with any book and with any author mm -hmm. and so i created a world in vox where women are the victims and I remember one reader actually reviewed it and said, this book made me want to punch a man. Mm. <laughs> so I thought, oh my goodness, did, is that what people think of me? Do they think I'm the kind of woman who wants to go and punch every man that I meet? That doesn't seem right. I don't know whether that's me. And I knew probably even before Vox came out, based on some of the press it was getting, I knew that I wanted to experiment with writing a book where the women weren't necessarily victims or things were a bit more complex. Where well, and, and if you think about what Margaret Atwood did with The Handmaid's Tale, the women were complicit. Right, right. You can have victims and you can have perpetrators of the same gender in a situation. Right. I, I think I think that's true. And I think that many of the women in Femlandia, uh, even though I won't reveal what they do, but well, a few of the things that they're engaged in are, are truly horrific. Uh, mm -hmm. They are complex characters. They, they do have some moral justifications for behaving the way that they do and for, for thinking the way that they think. Uh, but I wanted to write a book where the, where the lines were a little bit 
more blurry than they were in box. Mm -hmm. And so I do often wonder if people picked it up and and they thought, oh, this is going to be great. It's going to be about this women's colony where uh, this mother and her teenage daughter flee to in after a terrible economic crisis that just creates chaos in the outside Mm -hmm. world. And the only safe haven is is in is behind the gates or within the gates of this all female utopian self-sufficient community Mm -hmm. i wanted to i wanted to experiment with uh with with some more complexity of character and so i do wonder if people expected more of the same if they Mm -hmm. expected more okay all women are victims rah 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 mm-hmm. <laughs> isn't this great and uh and maybe turn that on its head and say eh, that's not necessarily the case so i suspect that's where some of the mixed feelings are coming from because people have expectations yeah. about an author based on the book that or well previous- They might have expectations about an author. So let's say you're an author who mostly writes fantasy and it's a certain thing. And then you come out with a sci-fi novel and they're like, you know, or a mystery. And they're like, oh, there's like that level of disappointment. But but for you, it's not just you as the author having written fairly consistently in a way through Vox and Masterclass and then taking another view of the topic. But you're also standing in the middle of this, you know, hot bubbling lava topic that a lot of people are are framing their self-identity around at this moment. People are, you know, facing decades of maybe suffering that they've experienced as a result of not having been able to overcome these issues. I mean, so they're also bringing, you know, all of their very authentic and understandable emotions around the topic to the fray, so to speak. So I imagine it might be a mix of both. That's true too, because I think, I think sometimes when we're when we're writing, we're so deeply into it that we don't, and, and we're we're writing based on what we feel sometimes, based on our own experiences or or based on our own perceptions of the world, and it, it's it's quite true, March, that we may forget as 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 authors that readers are necessarily going to bring their own experiences. Mm-hmm. into that reading experience. Uh, so that sounds weird because I used two experiences. <laughs> they're, 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 yes. they're, going, they're, going to, they're going to interpret a book or feel about a book in ways that we don't expect because, of course, we don't know them and we can't possibly know them. Uh, well, and what's but- interesting, though, is on one hand, it's a beautiful partnership you know, the, the best writing can happen when you, when you free yourself from feeling like you have to 100% create the entire story for some blank slate reader and instead realize that you're welcoming a complex human being to come in and sort of have a partnership of creating the story. You can describe what the house looks like, but what, you know, their mind actually sees will never be exactly what you described. It will be made up of images in their own life that are already existing in their mind that will just sort of glue on to the structure you've offered. And so there's the beauty of that, that co-creation. And then of course, there's, as you've pointed out, the fact that 
then they can take the story in a different direction based upon what they're bringing to it. That's uh, why some people love and hate the same book. Right. It's, it's, it's true. And one thing, another thing that I noticed, I gave, I gave a library talk. A bit, my, my mom volunteers at this, this little library in this tiny little town in, uh, in Virginia. Mm-hmm. And they invited me to give a talk about Masterclass this past summer for their book club. And they also invited other people. And there were about 35 or 40 people in the audience, which was good for a tiny little town. Right. In the, the middle of a pandemic. In the middle of, exactly, in the <laughs> middle of a pandemic. What was really fascinating to me was that almost everybody in the audience was at least 60 years old. Uh, many even older than that. We've got you know retired librarians, retired school teachers, uh, and so on and so forth. And they were just mad about the book. I mean, really mad about in a good way. Mad right. about the book. So it made me think that it made me think about demographics too, because I do find, first of all, I'm I'm not in my twenties anymore. Uh, <laughs> And that, mm-hmm. that's a good thing. Uh, I like I like being who I am and where I am in life. But I do think that that necessarily means that I may not be really in touch with a much younger generation. And I I wonder often if my books are more well received by much older demographic of readers than anybody ever expected, particularly because when Vox came out, since it was so closely tied to the Me Too movement and the Me Too movement was, I'm not going to say it was a movement for younger women, mm-hmm. but it was a movement that that had a very strong voice in social media. Yes. And I don't think that the kind of people who were at this library talk are really active on Twitter and Instagram and stuff. So, so, so I found, I found that age discrepancy in kind of who loves my books and who goes, wait a second, I don't know about this. Really an interesting thing to contemplate. And, um, and I think that we forget that too, as writers, We, we forget that there, not everybody is, not only are they not like us, but not everybody is of our generation. Right. Well, and the there I- are differences. Well, the irony is that earlier I was thinking about that as well in that the the beautiful thing about you touching on a general topic from different perspectives. You know, one is Vox, you know, women are are victims and innocent and good and men are the the evil source of all bad right you know it's a little bit more black and white and then you moved into finlandia which is going in with nuance and also um uh, the real the realness of the effect of power over other people upon the person who has that power and what happens when we bring in controls in a human environment? Is it ever possible to do that without there being unintended consequences as well and egos getting involved? And so you have touched, though, still upon 
a similar topic from these different angles. And so the beauty is that a person who read Vox and may have a more um, balanced viewpoint of the potential within human nature, regardless of gender, to be flawed, they might have been a little bit less attracted to Vox. And maybe Finlandia is going to totally, you know, be great for them and they're going to really get into that. So by having diversity in your viewpoint, you're also probably broadening the demographics of who's going to be comfortable, enjoy, appreciate, and like what you're writing. So I see you're going with the age demographics, which I agree. I think older people especially actually lived through it. They have that perspective. And younger people, there's like a a historical memory of sexism, but they didn't actually, they didn't get treated the way women got treated in the 60s, you know? And um, for me, having grown up, listening to the stories from my mother and who's in her early 70s and other women in that age group it was it's very visceral for me i really understand that it truly was happening in that way and therefore i appreciate right now the way i'm treated much better by men in my society at this point so i have like i feel like i almost have like two authentic experiences but i'm 49 if i was right. 25 I would have the beginning of my own experiences and only historical memory. And right, so, yes, right. those, those age differences make a huge, huge effect on how we relate to this topic in particular. It's personal experience well, versus heard stories. Especially when we're talking about feminism, which yes. seems to be a, uh, you know, whether I meant it to or not, it seems to be kind of the glue that, has, that binds these novels, whether it's Vox or mm-hmm. Masterclass or Femlandia together. And Vox was uh, touted as, you know, the, the feminist read of 2018, for instance. Mm. And so, so now we have to, and, and you know, people may look at Femlandia and go, gee, what is this? Is this feminist? Is it anti-feminist? I can't really figure out what it's supposed to be. Other uh, than a great story. <laughs> well, I think it's a great story, <laughs> and I, I do. I, I really, I really had a, a ball writing it uh, because it was more complex, and also it was my. I find there are elements of horror in it, and as anybody who knows me uh, or has heard me talk before, I'm absolutely in love with Stephen King. Oh, I, me too. I like he does, <laughs> but I, I do, I do like. Uh, I do like elements of putting elements of, of horror in into my writing and I find it sort of soothing because it makes the world that we live in look so much rosier. <laughs> okay, so I'm curious, um, what are like your top three favorite books by Stephen King? Oh, well, I love the Mr. Mercedes uh, trilogy mm-hmm. because I, I really like what he did going back to that kind of of James M. Cain, John D. McDonald, uh, hard-boiled old cop voice. I, mm-hmm. I think it's I think it's fabulous, and the and the three books work really nicely together. Of course, it introduces the wonderful Holly Gibney character. But uh, aside from that, I 
love The Shining and Dr. Sleep read in tandem. And a uh, word of warning to anybody who hasn't read Dr. Sleep but has read The Shining. If you read The Shining back in the 80s, read it again before you read Dr. Sleep. Oh. You find, and I think, and it's, and I think, especially if you read it when, as I did, when you're much younger, The Shining, that is, coming back to it and looking at what this book deals with. It's not about a haunted hotel. It's about a man who loves his family and is struggling with anger and control issues and alcoholism. And, and it's really, it's actually a very emotional story, more emotional, I think, than it is frightening. And I imagine uh, that a lot of people, since The Shining was created as a movie, oh. that everyone who sort of um, came to their maturity of the world, once that movie had been made and that image, you know, of Jack Nicholson's portrayal of that character and everything else, once that's in your mind, it, it puts a layer on top of the book. And, you know, it's yeah. that thing where if you've read the book before you see the movie, it, it allows you to actually co-create that book cleanly just with yourself and the author. But if you've already seen the movie, then you'll bring all those images in with you. So um, it would be interesting, someone who has not seen The Shining yet, don't see the movie yet either, you know, read the book first, see what it was. I completely agree. Yeah, the, the, yeah. the movie and um, Kubrick's movie is beautiful. I mean, it really is. It's stylistically beautiful and it's well acted, but it is not the book. It strays from the book and 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 it doesn't have any of the of the subtlety right. that the book has or yeah. the character. But I but I found that uh, I love the fact that King went back and took this kid who was six years old in The Shining and then showed him 30 some odd years later. And the, the character arc in Dr. Sleep is just absolutely beautiful. And it really, really makes The Shining shine even brighter. It, 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 it focuses a sort of a light on it and it makes you think about the book, The Shining in a very different way. So they work so well together um, and and I think that those are my those are my favorites. Well, that is so fascinating because King has written so many books, and I've actually um, not read any of those books you mentioned except oh. I, I dipped a toe into The Shining. For me, I read The Stand at least four times in high school. And Handwritten. yeah, yeah, <laughs> yep, 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 yep. Oh my gosh, love that book, love it. And it's weird because I'm like, why do I love that book? But I know why I love it, and it's like you said, it's because of all the deep interpersonal stuff going on. It's not because of, you know, the, the gross and the gore, but, um, and then the, my youngest, my brothers who are much younger than me, beautiful little blonde toddlers. When I was reading Pet Cemetery, and I just had to stop because I just oh. couldn't, he, I couldn't separate my love and desire to protect these beautiful toddler boys in my life from what was happening to this child. And the same thing happened with it. I got like one third of the way through it and literally couldn't sleep at night and put the book away and will never touch it again. So it's, yeah. it's, isn't it funny, the different experiences and the misery. He did write misery, correct? Yes, yes. absolutely. Misery, I read to the end, every single page. That I thought oh. was fascinating. Um, yeah. It is. And also devastating. And, you know, yeah. what I found, Having now, wow, you know, been reading this guy for ooh, 40 years uh, and rereading the books. Yeah. And what I've found is that these books are never about 
what they look like they're about on the surface. Mm-hmm. They're about some deep-seated human fear and, and or some, some struggle that is very universal, whether it's, you know, anger management or alcoholism or the, uh, the, the inability to accept death, like we see in Pet mm-hmm. Cemetery, for instance. Or insecurities, like we see insecurities. in some of the, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. They're just, they're about, you know, good and evil, uh, really the most fundamental of struggles. Which is why they're so amazing. (laughs) It is, it is. So, so I think it's, uh, yeah, we could talk about Stephen King forever, but he, you know, he's got a really big fat royalty statement. (laughs) Enough publicity, enough free publicity. I know, I know. All right. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, actually, and unfortunately we have like six minutes left. So, um, let's see here. I was wondering if you're familiar with the women-only community in Africa called Mohawaso, and if you had researched that. No. Okay. I am embarrassed to say I'm not familiar with it. Well, check it out. You can look them up. They come up pretty easily on Google now, and I think you'll find it really fascinating because it was founded in 1990. It's an area where there's lots of abuse that goes on, um, men towards women, and she's like, I'm going to go and create this safe space. And the, the story is amazing. I think there's documentaries that have been done around it. But they deal with some of the issues that probably naturally came up um, in Finlandia, which is, you know, men are banned. But these women in this village, they're having children. Well, that's, you know, how did they figure out how they were allowed to have lovers while also living safe from male domination? And then... When the children are born and they have boys and those boys grow up, how do they make the decision about whether the boys can stay at a certain age or do they have to leave? So there's actually a real world situation that is dealing with these issues. And I just think you're going to find it fascinating. Oh, I am going to find it fascinating. And like I said, I'm quite embarrassed that it's, oh. uh, that it, you know, it's not on my radar. But, uh, but, but there's it, that thing. Everyone oh. knows something someone else doesn't know. Right. Yeah. And that's really really the, the sort of mysterious part about about Finlandia is so so the book we've yeah. got an, we've got a total economic crisis uh, that hits the country and this woman Miranda and her 16 year old daughter have nowhere to go I mean the, the utilities are shut off the stores are empty it's it's this isn't like COVID-19 empty. This is empty. This there's is depression. Looting. There's Dep- violence. Yeah. It is a, it, it, it's just horrible. And there's nowhere to go except this all-women community called Femlandia, which was founded by the main character's mother, mm-hmm. estranged mother. And so she goes there because she's gotten a choice. Uh, what she finds looks like a utopia. But again, as in the, the real world community that you mentioned, March, babies are being born. They happen to all be girls. What's going on here? What lengths have these women who founded Femlandia gone to, to preserve this all-female community? And do, there are questions. Do they, do they hate men? Do they fear men? Uh, what is, what's their motivation? So that's the book in a nutshell. And Miranda, of course, finds out what's going on and has to make some rather difficult choices. But there are interesting relationship questions about how far 
does the apple fall from the tree? You know, if you're a mother and a, say a radical feminist, are you then disappointed in your daughter when she becomes a traditional wife? If you're that daughter, are you then disappointed in your own daughter when she embraces something that is sort of tantamount to radical feminism? Mm-hmm. It's, uh, so, so I like exploring those how far does the apple fall from the tree questions? And I've done that too in, you know, in Vox and in Masterclass. I mean, do we as parents ex- expect kids to be carbon copies of ourselves? And if we do, are we in for some serious disappointment? Right. And just like Stephen King, you're diving into these very real, you know, deep issues and quandaries that I don't think you can be human on planet Earth and dodge or avoid these. You can ignore no, them, but they're I there. I don't think so, but it but it does make them hard reads. I mean, sometimes I have to say, and this is a big confession, sometimes I wish I could just write those wonderful historical romances where <laughs> people get together in the end after having lost themselves, it lost touch for 70 years and there's a notebook or, you know, right. Nicholas <laughs> Bart, right? And, and then I, I realized, but this is the thing. And this is about adaptability to come full circle. Mm. Maybe that is what a lot of people want. But if that's not what we feel motivated to write, then we got to do what we what we got to do. Let the stuff out. Uh, it's really a quandary. But we can as writers, we can't help but be ourselves. And some people are going to love that. Some people are going to hate it. In the end, what we have to do is we have to love what the work that we put out and the work that we create. And I'll tell you what, it's a hard road to hoe sometimes, Mm. but I think it's an important one to stick to. The best way to write, I think the greatest satisfaction comes when we write something without expecting that it's going to sell there's a part of writing that is very therapeutic. It's like doing self-therapy mm. and it helps us work out our own issues. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it helps us answer questions that, that we have. And I'm not saying that we should write in a bubble, but I think there's a sense in which maybe we all do to a certain. Well, there's room certain- for both. There's room. I mean, that your original question in a way was, and I always think of actors, you know, you know, you have an actor who plays a certain type and then you just assume that that's sort of how they actually are in real life. And then we'll say to ourselves, oh, no, no, come on. The actor could be always portraying some upstanding great guy and he could actually be like, you know, a total jerk and we just don't know it. The truth is that writers are their personal selves and they are their public um, gift giving selves. And so we need to remember that um, you are allowed to be both. Right. And I think that's, I think that's the, the, the best way to think about it, really. We, we have to give ourselves permission to be private people and public people Absolutely. and really not, not worry about it so much. Yeah. Your voice, you know, the way in which you, you get their thoughts out, the way you create tensions in such a subtle way. And it just, I was really, really enjoying the beginning of the story. So I can't wait to finish it now. And I really, really am glad that you took all this time out of your life to create Finlandia so we get to enjoy it. Well, thank you. I'm glad (laughs) to. And thank you so much for joining me here on Prose, Poetry, and Purpose. 
Thanks, March. This has been an absolutely delightful experience. What a great chat. I know, right? And so for folks, if you are just now joining us and missed the beginning, I am talking with Christina Delcher, and she is the author of Vox and Masterclass and Finlandia, which just came out. She's got all sorts of other amazing things she's done in her life. So you can learn more. You go to marchtwisdale.com. You can scroll down on the homepage or go straight to the podcast page, and there'll be a bio there, as well as, of course, you can hear the entire show if you missed any of it. So folks, that's marchtwisdale.com. And Christina, if people want to learn more about you, what's your website? I'm at christinadoucher.com. Brilliant. Easy. And I am also uh, back on Twitter at CV underscore Doucher. Awesome. Great. Thank you again so much for joining me today. Thank you, March. <laughs> 